Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. When I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. One episode in particular really struck a chord with me. It was titled Octopus Octopus, and it did a great job of educating viewers like me about the wonder and mysteries of these fascinating sea creatures. And also my whole life, I've been fascinated by birds of prey. I'm lucky to get to see lots of hawks, ospreys, and even bald eagles from my backyard. So during this past holiday season, I received a copy of nature writer Cy Montgomery's latest book from her publisher. It's titled The Hawk's Way, about her encounters with falconry and birds of prey. Then for Christmas, I received The Soul of an Octopus, which came out in 2015 as a gift from a family member. I devoured both of Montgomery's books and found them fascinating and passionately written. And I knew that listeners to this show would love to hear a conversation with this amazing and adventurous woman. Cy Montgomery has written dozens of books, including books for children like Becoming a Good Creature and The Octopus Scientists. She joined us recently from her home in New Hampshire to talk both hawks and octopuses. Cy Montgomery, welcome to Blue Dot. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So I have to tell you, um, your publisher sent me uh, The Hawk's Way uh, just before Christmas to review and see if I'd like to talk to you. And I started to peruse it and thought, oh, yeah, this looks very interesting. And then for Christmas, my stepdaughter got me, uh, not knowing anything about this, The Soul of an Octopus, uh, thinking that I would really like it, and she was right, and I loved it. And I was like, how, how interesting is this that I, you know, I get this book from the publisher, and then I get this other book from, you know, almost from the universe saying, here, here's more Cy Montgomery. <laughs> well, watch out. I'll send you my entire oeuvre. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I'm looking at your other titles and thinking, oh, hummingbirds, I love them. Oh, yeah. Everyone loves them. They're just magic, aren't they? Oh, they are. And uh, I'm looking out my window at the feeder right now. It's pouring rain. And yet the birds in my yard are at the feeder. You know, they, they just like nothing's going. And the hummingbirds out there feeding. It's like it doesn't seem to bother them at all, which is amazing. Oh, I envy you. I'm in New Hampshire and uh, no one's at the feeder right now. It's, yeah, it's, it's raining cold. and cold and nasty, but someone will come. Well, I'd like to first find out a little bit about your origin story. Uh, how did you first get interested in nature? Where did that deep love and passion come from? Because it comes across in your writing so much. And then, and then when did you become a writer? How did that happen? Well, all of my friends when I was growing up were either plastic dinosaurs, adults, or animals. And my favorite friends were all animals. And I don't remember this far back, but my parents had told me that when I was less than two, I was born in Germany, and they took me to the Frankfurt Zoo. And as I was toddling around, at one point, I broke free of their hands. And when they looked up to try to find me, you, know, you didn't have her? No, I thought you had her. I was in the hippo pen. Oh, goodness. And, yeah, I know. And I wasn't worried. And the hippos weren't worried. And so ever since then, and probably before then, I've always been been drawn to other kinds of minds. And I've always known it. I think most children know that animals have thoughts and feelings, too. They may not have the same thoughts and feelings, or else fish would want to get out of the water, and dogs wouldn't be licking under their tails. But they do think about stuff. And um, they 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 are cognizant, sentient, and have emotions and memories. And 
I've always wanted to get closer and closer and learn more and more about animals. So, of course, you know, I was I was born in 1958, and at that time, little girls didn't grow up wanting to be jungle explorers. There wasn't a major that you could major in in college by the time I was to get there that would lead down the path that I wanted. But um, I remember wanting to be a veterinarian until I began to learn how to read. And when I was reading, my father would always show me articles from the New York Times. So this was in, you know, the early 1960s. And he'd read me and let me try to read the articles about animals. But what were all the stories about, about animals in the 1960s in the New York Times? Well, they were almost all about how bald eagles were going extinct because of DDT and whales were disappearing because ships were striking them and pollution was in the seas and elephants were being hunted to extinction. And it was then that I began to think, well, there's other ways to help animals in addition to being a veterinarian. And that's where I went and that's what I did. And I've been happy ever since. The story about uh, getting in the hippopotamus pen really uh, strikes me as hilarious. I, you, you're, you're the kid who, when she heard, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas, you took it literally. <laughs> and you said, well, I'm, I'm going in there. Yeah, well, you know what's funny is I, I've never, I'm not a fearless person, but I'm not afraid of any animal. And animals, more importantly, are not afraid of me. Even when I was little, I knew to stay still. And I think this was one reason why I preferred the company of animals, because other children just seemed to be so wiggly. And I always wanted to stay still and watch and see what happens next. One of the things I've always known, because I'm very similar to you in that way, and I've always had a way around animals, and especially like dogs, people will tell me, it's like, well, you know, don't go near him. He's, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I'll just put my hand down. The dog comes up and licks me and they'll look at me like, whoa, I've never seen that before. Wow. You know, they do pick up on calm, you know, that, that vibe of calm and I'm not here to harm you. So I really do feel like animals are much more sensitive than we are to picking up on those kinds of vibes. Um, let's talk about hawks because mm. I've always been fascinated by birds of prey. In fact, you, reading this book reminded me when I was a teenager in high school, I'm sure I thought it was cool. It was probably stupid looking. I had a photograph uh, that I had taken of a red-tailed hawk of just his head with his magnificent beak and uh, fierce looking eyes. And I had that, that photograph put on a, on, on a leather necklace that I wore with like beads. This is back in the seventies. I'm about the same age as you are. So I was in high school in the seventies and I, you know, I, I love that hawk and uh, I've always been fascinated by birds of prey. When did you uh, first get interested in wanting to pursue uh, learning more about hawks and, and, and birds of prey, and then and to get into falconry and to meet your 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 friend, uh, Nancy Cowan. And, and uh, first of all, I want to say I'm sorry to hear about her passing a year ago. Yeah, thank you. Gosh, well, my husband has noticed, since I tend to crowd the house with all kinds of critters, that um, any chance I can get to get closer to an animal, learn more about it, I'm all over it. And so um, one day he was listening to the radio, this was over 10 years ago, 
and heard an ad for a thing called New Hampshire School of Falconry. And it was only about a half hour drive from our house. So he told me about it and I called up and said, I want to have a lesson. And I called up a girlfriend of mine who works, uh, used to work at the bookstore, who I adored and said, do you want to join me? Well, we didn't know it, but we were the first students at New Hampshire School of Falconry with master falconer, Nancy Cowan. And what a lesson. I was so shocked by what I encountered. It was nothing like what I expected. What did you expect it to be like? And then, you know, because we all have those things where we, we think we, we know what some experience is going to be like, and then it turns out to be very different. Tell us about that aspect of your first encounter with Nancy and her birds of prey. Well, I certainly did not expect that within the first five minutes of our time with the birds, one of them would bite Nancy in the face and she would be dripping blood as the three of us women would be walking casually down the street with birds of prey on our fists. <laughs> I was really very surprised by that. Normally, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been to a lot of classes about animals. I took a camel riding seminar at the uh, New York Zoo, and I've been to lots of classes with my dog, and I've been to lectures. And normally, you don't expect actual blood to be spilled so early <laughs> in the endeavor, but that was the case. And my my husband says, you know, dealing with these birds, it's like dealing with a loaded gun. Yeah, But that only made me love the bird more. I had on my fist, I think, the most beautiful bird I'd ever seen in my was life. Was it a Harris hawk? Yes. Yeah. Her name was Jazz. Oh, yeah. The females are larger than the males. And when they're right up next to you, I mean, we've all seen hawks overhead. They're magnificent. I, I Every year I, I love to walk the uh, to watch the, the uh, broadwing hawk migration um, over Pac-Monadnock. Um, you you see them somewhat close sometimes. Sometimes one dives by your bird feeder. Mm-hmm. But having one on your fist where you can look at those enormous, luminous, uh, just all-devouring eyes and those beautiful obsidian talons set in the yellow feet and the curved beak, the magnificence just blows your soul away. And there's almost no room for you to think about anything except the glory of this bird and how humbling it is to be in the presence of someone like that. I've never had one on my hand, but I have been with someone who was rehabilitating a red-tailed hawk and also a bald eagle. So I've been able to be up close with them and, you know, and have that observation. And they are so stunning. You just can't take your eyes off them. And they, they, they're just magnificent. I, I, they're enthralling. Yeah. And, and their eyes, you know, for primates, we depend on our eyesight and we experience the world mostly through our eyes, as opposed to someone like a dog who's living so much through their nose and other animals that depend on other senses, like octopuses depend on their sense of taste, which they have all over their bodies. But the eyes of a raptor they are they are experiencing so much more of the world than we are they're amazing because their eyes are so they devour the world 
more rapidly and more completely than we do. And that is really humbling. You do a really neat job in the book of explaining how much more that they see and, and perceive the world through their eyes. Could you just tell us a little bit about um, what the world really would be like through their eyes? Oh, my gosh. Well, first, their eyes, most hawks' eyes are twice as big as their brain. And an owl's eyes, if our eyes were as big as an owl's in our heads, they'd be the size of oranges. So that's how important the eyes are. Well, a hawk at a thousand feet in the air can see for three square miles. They could read an eye chart from several blocks away and maybe even read the copyright. And they see colors that we don't even know about. And they see with such perfect vision. We we have one area called the, uh, the fovea of perfect vision in our eyes. They have two foveae, and ours has 200,000 cones. Those are the cells that detect sharp contrast and detail per per millimeter, 200,000 cones per millimeter. Hawks have a million packed into the same space. They have a wider field of vision than we do, and they process their visual images immensely quickly. You and I, we look at the wings of a hummingbird for example, and we see a blur. A hawk sees the wings going up and down, curving into an eight, and then up and then down and curving into an eight. Just they process this at hyper fast speed. And they have to because hawks themselves are often hunting on the wing. And if you're a peregrine falcon, for instance, you are flying in a stoop after your prey at 240 miles an hour. So you have to process what you see hyper fast because your life depends on it. I remember um, you just reminded me of an experience I had as a kid when I was a a young teenager and uh, went on an Audubon uh, field trip. It was a camping trip to Morro Bay here in California. And there are peregrines that live on Morro Rock. And I remember um, watching through binoculars, um, there was a seagull and, and this bird came stooping down and just in astonishing speed, plummeting like a rock, really hit it in the back of the head. And then this poor bird is like, it was a very a young seagull, was like, you know, just rotating, uh, somersaulting through the air, you know, completely out of control. And then the mate came in, dove and grabbed it. And the two of them flew off. And it was just like one of those moments where it was like, oh, wow. wow. That is so great. Oh, my gosh. Why didn't I know you many years ago? (laughs) We are such kindred spirits. Seeing something like that just kind of transforms you. You know, I I think so many people go through life thinking that we humans are the pinnacle of everything. But you see something like that. That just changes the way you understand your place in this world. And you just kind of walk through life after that in this state of awe, don't you? I mean, what a thing. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with naturalist and best-selling author Cy Montgomery as we talk about two of her latest books, The Hawk's Way and the 2015 bestseller, The Soul of an Octopus. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot.
And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with author Cy Montgomery, author of The Hawk's Way and The Soul of an Octopus. Let's talk about falconry um, because there's so many, you know, people don't really, I, I don't, I, I would guess that most people don't know anybody who does falconry. They just kind of vaguely know about it. Um, and some people might think, oh, that's unethical. Um, talk a bit about the ethics of falconry and, and keeping birds of prey and hunting them because we're, really what you are is hunting. And one of the things that I struck me is really interesting when I read your book was that uh, when you're a falconer, you you aren't like using the bird to hunt for you. It's like you, the bird is using you. You are the servant of the bird. Exactly. And just the idea of me hunting was pretty bizarre. I, I did not even think. Because you're a I, vegetarian, my, right? Yeah, I'm, t- I'm totally vegetarian. I see a dead squirrel on the side of the road. I'm sick for the rest of the day. So when I first signed up for this lesson, it didn't even occur to me what falconry really is. It's not walking around with a cool bird on your fist. It is the art of partnering with a bird and you are the junior partner. And of course, you know, I'm sure there's people who do this wrong, but done right, you are the bird's servant. And falconers have been great servants of their birds through the ages and most recently have been leaders in the comeback of birds of prey from the verge of extinction after we nearly wiped them all out from just shooting them for them or shooting them because they they will take the occasional chicken to poisoning them with DDT. And it was Falconer's expertise in raising birds and taking care of birds that allowed the reintroduction of a lot of these endangered species into areas where now they are thriving. But I do admit that I too was kind of shocked at what it it takes to actually become a falconer. You have to take a wild bird out of the wild. And at first I thought, well, that's terrible one shouldn't do that. I mean, you don't take an endangered species. You take the very common, in New Hampshire, you'd take the, the, the commonest species, which, which is a red tail. But could I deprive a wild animal of its freedom? Well, I learned from Nancy that most falconers actually release their bird after they help them survive the very tough period between like chickhood and their very first year. You're only allowed to capture these young birds of the year. And most birds of the year do not survive the year, but under a falconer's care, they will. And then you can release them into the wild, fat and happy and healthy to go make more birds. So I was morally fine and on board with that. And, um, because I wanted to get into the mind of someone else, somehow when I was looking at hunting through the mind of a bird of prey, it no longer seemed to me a, a, a cruel, useless thing that I had no interest in doing. I mean, because I have the option of having a nice veggie burger and a stalk of broccoli, but a hawk doesn't. 
They, they have choice in their lives, but not much when it comes to what they're eating. They have got to, to kill with their face every meal that they eat. And that's also their, their joy. A, a, a bird of prey is never more alive or happier than when it is chasing its prey. That's what they live to do. And when a bird is doing that, their happiness becomes mine. And I never dreamed I would feel happiness of that nature. Yeah, because that happiness was born from your insight into understanding the role that this predator plays uh, in the in the grand scheme of things in nature. Yes. And, you know, we've many of us have been friends with predators before. Our dogs are cursorial yeah. predators. But, you know, you open a can of dog food and you're, you're feeding them and um, they, they don't have to catch and kill a squirrel. But when they're playing with your sock and when they're shaking it back and forth, what they're really doing is breaking the neck of their prey. And when they take all the insides out of the $17.99 toy you just got them, what they're doing is they're eviscerating their prey. Kill, kill that squeaky real... toy. <laughs> right, yes. exactly. My, my, my little dog is an expert at like, we play a game, like, how long will it take Pearl to get the squeaker out? Right, exactly. Oh, and you've got you've to make sure they don't actually go as far as to swallow some. Oh, no. I, it's like I watch, <laughs> I watch her like a hawk, as the saying like goes. Like a hawk, yes. Well, um, you know, one of the things that struck me uh, reading about falconers, like, like like your friend Nancy, is that you, you know, I could see somebody maybe listening to this or, you know, and certainly not, I would think, from reading your book because you offer, you know, good insight. But this is not something for everybody. It's not It's not like, oh, I think I'll take this up as a hobby. This is something you really have to be very specially dedicated to. Yes. And um, I did not go all the way and become a, a falconer per se. And I was glad for that, for your husband's sake. Well, my God, Howard is such a saint. My my husband is wonderful because we've had many different animals at our house from a 750-pound pig who lived for 14 years to right now we've got four Blandings turtles I'm ahead starting to release. He's been so patient and so wonderful. But we had chickens for many years. And to be a falconer, you have to capture a hawk. You have to build an aviary called a muse for that, that hawk. And you can bet that that hawk would notice our chickens. <laughs> um, and I travel so much. Who's going to feed the hawk while I'm away? Well, it wasn't going to be my husband's. So I opted to preserve my chickens and my marriage, not in that order. Um, and that's why. When I do falconry these days, it's with someone else's hawk. And happily, there's a hawk just living up the block from us. A friend who I didn't know at the time, and he didn't live here at the time that I was taking falconry lessons from Nancy, um, is a master falconer himself. And he has a Harris hawk, a male named Mahood, who is um, in my life now. So I still get to fly with hawks now and then 
and and preserve your marriage and the chickens if you had them. <laughs> right. Actually, predators got all of my chickens but oh. one, and she lives up the street with my friends, the Browns. And when the Browns go away, I take care of their hens and my hens. So I still see her. Tell us uh, about uh, some of the birds that you got to fly and interact with, uh, about like their distinctive personalities. Like I'm thinking about Jazz, the first encounter you had. Jazz, interestingly, I got to pick out Jazz. I could have picked from several different hawks that uh, Nancy was offering me. And she told me Jazz was feisty. And I picked her because she was feisty. She was the biggest one. Um, she She wasn't as Nancy put it, a brat. She didn't bite you in the face. That was Banshee uh, who bit Nancy in the face. Banshee was a peregrine uh, falcon and a bite from one of those guys really hurts because it's kind of like a stapler gun. Anyway, um, and I've, I've never been bitten in the face by, by a hawk. Thank Other goodness. things, but not a hawk. Um, but the thing about jazz was, and I, I didn't know this in, until after jazz came to my glove, I was the first person besides Nancy to whom that bird would fly. She wouldn't fly to anyone before me. And I just was so honored that that, that was the case. When a bird is feisty, they, they do several different things. You just got to watch and make sure that they don't stab you with their talons or um, or bite you. Usually Harris hawks don't bite so much, but they will hit you with their talons. And the other thing they do that's so disturbing is something called baiting off the glove. And you you have them on your glove before you let them free to fly. You have them tethered to the glove. And they'll try to fly off the glove and hit the end of their tether, and then they'll be upside down flapping. Oh, geez. And you feel terrible about this, but then here's somebody with these obsidian talons and pointy beak flapping around, and you have to push them back up onto your glove where they can sit correctly. And a lot of times, the next thing they do is bait again. And that can be very intimidating. Um, happily, I wasn't particularly intimidated by it my concern was that I, I just didn't want her legs to get caught in the or hurt her in any way or even break a tail feather I just didn't want anything to happen to the hawk now fire and smoke fire was the real fiery one smoker was was a little bit easier of a of a hawk to fly and fire knew me well but one day I appeared at an event at, at which uh, I had to wear a skirt and fire was there and she'd never seen me in a skirt before well she totally disapproved of my wardrobe and she was screaming at me i hate you i hate she just rah, rah, rah. she could not stand it because what had i done with my legs they don't like it when you change things oh, yeah. so i was always careful in the past to to wear the same thing some some hawks really dislike people who wear sunglasses and, and they will knock them off your, yeah, or hats. They'll knock them off as they fly by with their talons, oh, which can be disturbing. So you, you want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're not displeasing your hawks. But as long as you're, you're handling things in a way that they like, you know, remember, 
you're the servant. You know, you're the junior partner. We got along just fine. Well, I remember the the, the dog's name was Stormy. Absolutely. And, yep. and and Smoke was is of course the hawk. And there there's a you have an episode where Nancy takes you out, you know, teaching Smoke to hunt and using the dog. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what that relationship is like between dog person hawk? Yeah, this is so interesting because naturally hawks pretty much hate dogs. I mean, they they hate that they exist in the world. And you have to demonstrate to your hawk that the dog that you're hunting with can be useful to their hunting. Only by showing that you are useful to their hunting will a bird pay any attention to you at all. And once they see that, that goes into the file folder, hunting, and they never forget. But you have to set up a situation in which they will notice that the dog, for example, pointed toward the game. You have to set up a situation in which maybe you're just staggering around through the woods and some little mouse gets disturbed while you're kicking through some leaves. That hawk notices that. Oh, good. That person disturbed that little mouse. I'm going to follow them. And then you get the bird following on. So um, we were trying to teach fire and smoke this one day. And the way that, that we did it was through the use of this thing that sounds horrible, it was called a quail launcher. The launcher. I know, it sounds dreadful, um, but it's it's really more like a trampoline. It's not like shooting it out of a cannon. And you have to set things up so that the bird and the dog are looking in the direction that they are going to see the quail that you are releasing through the launcher as it flies. And you want the hawk to notice the dog is pointing at it. So you just have to show them that like once and they'll never forget it. But invariably, you know, at the moment you launch it, the dog is looking over here or um, the dog who knows to point a bird is pointing at the bird you're trying to teach. And of course the bird will just scream, you idiot, you idiot, don't do that. You moron, get away from me, you disgusting dog. But once it clicks, you see it click. It's like a miracle to see these three disparate species working together for a single goal. And I also liked how you were you were pretty conflicted as I would have been because I love quail. We have oh, lots no around kidding. my house. Like you're kind of like rooting for the quail and then you're having to, you know, go through this thing and you're like, whose side am I on here? I know. I know. It's so funny. We were watching Seinfeld last night and there's that episode when he says, you're watching the lion and he's trying to get an antelope. And if it's the antelope show, you're like, run antelope, run, use your speed. But then the next week it's the lion episode. And you're like, run, don't I mean, run after that antelope, get him. Don't let him use his speed. So, you know, it depends on whose side are you on. And when it's your friend, you're on their side. Well, that just reminds me of like my own home. As I look out my window, there's there's about 40 birds right now out in my yard feeding. And, you know, there's little sparrows and all kinds of things, finches. And then, you know, I'm always scanning the, the phone pole looking for you-know-who, mm-hmm. who knows that the birds are here. And uh, he's a Swainson's hawk. Oh, wow. and, and he's very beautiful. But, um, you know, every once in a while, 
all of a sudden we'll see the flash of wings and then boom, a little bird hits the window because it's gotten panicked and tried to get away. And, and then, and then the next thing you know, the hawk has it. And it, um, one of the, one of the things Cheryl says to me all the time is I know they have to eat too. I just don't want to see it. So it's like, I, I get that. I um, know. But when well, you have that intimate relationship with a hawk, like you do when, when you're doing what you did, um, it's, it's just, you know, part of. Well, it's, it's kind of a lesson in understanding the other. Because I, I have zero desire to chase my food and kill it with my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can understand the rapturous, fiery joy of that hawk. Their joy is mine when they are chasing their prey and when they succeed. And I never thought I could see things in that way. And it's it's like learning a higher form of love. And that is, I think, the biggest thing I learned from Nancy and taking falconry was a real selfless kind of love. The love that expects nothing in return except the glory of being in the presence of the loved one. Well, I would like to pass along a bit of advice for our listeners, um, is that never, never leave a mirror out in your yard, a large mirror, because, uh, I, I, one of my neighbors accidentally killed one of the neighborhood hawks by just leaving oh. a mirror out. Oh and, my gosh. you know, it's just like, the, they do not understand what a mirror is, and when they fly at it, you know, they have no idea, and then, they, you know, they, they kill themselves. It's, but it's, I'm so glad you're telling people that, Dave, because that is true of all. You know, all birds will do that. Don't leave mirrors outside. Just do not do it. Yeah, I'm glad that you're sharing that. Okay, one, one last thing about hawks before we move to a different topic. Uh, the concept, and I don't I hope I'm pronouncing this right, of Yarak. Yarak, yep. Yarak. Um, tell us what, what Yarak is. Yarak is the buildup of hunting desire, and it becomes explosive. And when it happens, if you're not feeding that bird's need, if you're not letting the bird chase prey, um, it, it will attack you. It's a very dangerous thing. And this happened to Nancy. And she was so surprised. It was a hawk who she knew very well and who she had raised from a chick. And all of a sudden, first he started braceleting her wrist with his talons. Just that's exactly what it sounds like. You take your talons and you you put them like a bracelet around the wrist of your person. And they're so strong. Yeah. It didn't hurt her, but she thought that was a little odd. And then one day. He attacked her, and he seemed just as surprised at the attack as she was. And at that time, she had to consult with some experts, and they discovered that she had just started this bird on hunting and then had to stop. Abruptly, it was winter. She wasn't able to take him out somewhere. But the bird had had a chance to discover how wonderful it is to chase after prey. And suddenly that desire was thwarted, but it continued to build up and build up and build up until this explosion of temper happened. 
And what she realized she had to do was find a way to let that bird hunt. If you're just joining us, our guest is nature writer Cy Montgomery, and we're talking about her passion for animals from birds of prey to octopuses. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening. Let's return now to our visit with best-selling nature writer, Cy Montgomery. The hawk stories were just amazing. But I also had this other book that I got for Christmas, which you wrote a few years ago. And uh, when I got it, uh, my first thought was, oh, yes, octopus, octopus. I remember Jacques Cousteau, uh, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau. And I remember that episode so vividly as a child because... You know, octopuses were, you know, something that, you know, were monster creatures that would, you know, grab the Nautilus in 20,000 leagues under the sea and try to destroy it and things like that. You'd see, see, you know, pictures from books of giant octopuses taking ships down and killing people and they're so fearsome and awful. And then when I watched that, that documentary as a child, I learned that octopuses are wonderful Yes. And then I saw the documentary, and I'm sure you've seen it too, um, My Octopus Teacher, yes. which is a beautiful documentary. And then I read your book, The Soul of an Octopus. And I have to say, I, I finished it this morning, and uh, when it got to the end with Octavia, I'm going to try to hold it together here, I was just, you know, I was a mess after, you know, reali- realizing, you know, that you were, you know, you were going to lose your friend. Tell us a bit about how you first got interested in going to the aquarium there, the New England Aquarium there in Boston, and and getting to know octopuses because they are the most phenomenal creatures. Yeah, man, you would you would have to go to outer space or science fiction to find anything as alien as an octopus, anything more unlike us. You know, they got three hearts. Their brain is a is shaped like a loop around their throat. They taste with their skin. They change color and shape. They shoot ink. They can pour their baggy boneless bodies through a tiny opening. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. But I wondered, I've had a lot of animal friendships. Could I be friends with someone like that? So I went to New England Aquarium in March 2011. and. Behind the scenes, they opened the tank containing their giant Pacific octopus, the largest of all the species. And her name was Athena. And she was kind of resting in her lair. But the minute they opened the tank top, she came oozing out of her lair. And I saw her eyes swivel and lock onto my face. And she came up reaching for me with her white suckers and her bright red arms. And I asked, can I touch her? And my friend Scott said, yes. And I plunged my hands and arms into the water. And soon my skin was covered with dozens and dozens of these questing suckers. And every one of the suckers was essentially giving me a hickey. And she was tasting me and she was feeling me and she was looking into my face. And I 
instantly understood that this animal is just as curious about me as I am about her. And by tasting you, it's not like they're, you know, deciding that they're going to eat you. It's their way of like sensing you. Right. Because they are covered with taste sensors. It's like as if your tongue uh, extended all over your body, if your toes and your eyelids and your armpits could all taste. They can't help but taste. But their suckers are where those chemo uh, receptors are most exquisitely concentrated. And by tasting you, they can tell stuff about you. Um, I, I, I think, and this is just this is just me. Um, it is a fact, though, that that their sense of taste is exquisite, and that they use this important sense. But I think that they can taste our blood beneath our skin, and as you know. The chemistry of your blood changes with your emotion. It changes with any medicines you're taking. It it changes if you're frightened. It changes if you're happy. It changes if you're angry. We know that, you know, the neurochemistry, your brain like dumps these juices into your body and it gets carried around in your blood. I think they may be able to taste your feelings. And I think she could taste that I was also curious and I wasn't going to harm her and I wasn't frightened. It's almost like, um, I'm turning this into an SAT question here, that, that the, the octopus uh, suckers in their the sense of taste is like as to the hawk in its eyes. It's just this phenomenal sensory ability they have that we really don't fully understand. And, you know, when you get to know someone who can do this superpower, it just, it kind of expands your own experience of the world. It makes it much larger because maybe you can't, you know, see for three square miles from a thousand feet in the air and you can't detect the chemical composition of a person that you meet the first time you meet them. But you know someone who can, you know it can be done and you know that the world is built of abilities like this. And the world is much bigger than our senses can apprehend. What was also really cool about the book was that um, the octopuses in your story at the aquarium, they had friends. Yeah. You had friends that were, the friend, these friendships and relationships all revolved around the octopuses. Yes. And, and there was this deep sense that once you got to know, if once you had one of them, uh, like like uh, Octavia or Kali or any of the ones that you interacted with, once that they had wrapped their tentacles around you and interacted with you and looked you in the eye, that there was this sense of like, I love this creature. Yes. And it was kind of universal with all of you guys. Yeah, it was totally, it was, it was like, these are my people. This is so great. And back then, you know, remember, I'm researching this in 2011. Um, my octopus teacher would not come out until, when did it come out? 2020? Um, well, I think it was before that. Well, but not much. I know it came out after 2015 because Solomon Octopus came out in 2015. Um, and I knew that this film was being made at the time. He's such a great guy, by the way. Anyway, um, a lot that is now known about octopuses and fish, and octopuses are not fish, of course, they're invertebrates, 
sea creatures was not known at that time. People would ask, you know, oh, fish don't feel pain, do they? Well, oh my goodness, they certainly do. But a lot of this was not then known. But the folks that I got to know at New England Aquarium, they knew that truth. They knew that even though fish, for example, may not show their emotions as obviously to us as do octopus, that they have them. And it's it's kind of like a, you know, a little, I mean, secret society sounds so scary, but it was like a, a society of people who understood this truth about the world that seemed to be hidden from everyone else. Yeah, because most people, you know, because they don't have that experience and haven't really been around octopuses and just have the the cultural uh baggage that comes with them being some kind of sea monster and and what they look like is kind of alien is that kind of ew why, why would you want to do that but but you could tell right away from you and 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 your friends that you know once you'd been touched by an octopus it was like you 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 want to go back and get touched as often as you can and and visit your friend uh, and yes. you like did that like every week was it octopus wednesdays i think it was yes it was wonderful wednesdays i loved it and you know what, you know, now, um, since I was doing that research and since the book came out in 2015, there's been a lot more research done on octopus mentality and sociality. One of the things that seemed impossible was how can somebody be so smart who doesn't share the characteristics of the typical smart animals like, you know, elephants and dolphins and and people and monkeys? These are all long-lived social animals. Octopuses are short-lived and their lives were believed to be solitary. Well, now we know that they're not necessarily as solitary as was, was once thought and that they actually, many species, form relationships with other species in the sea, that they, they will hunt cooperatively with other species like a hawk does with a dog. And many people have become interested in octopus lately and more people are finding octopuses and hanging out with them in the sea and discover that wild octopuses, while many times they're secretive and they're using their camouflage to remain invisible, a number of them are quite friendly and will literally take you by the hand and lead you around. I this love that. The, they me. take you on a tour of their little neighborhood. Yes, I've had it happen in the wild. When tell I was us, Tell us what that's like. What is oh that like? Oh my gosh. Well, it was wild because um, I, was, I was with these wonderful octopus experts, Jennifer Mather, David Scheel, who has a brand new book about octopus coming out in June that you definitely want to, to check out. Uh, Tatiana Leite, a Brazilian expert. Um, and uh, a, a friend from the Vancouver Aquarium. We went to Moray in Polynesia and we were studying octopus personality in the wild. And at first it seemed like, oh my God, we can't even find the octopuses. Well, then we were finding the octopuses, but they weren't coming out. All you would see would be like one arm and a bunch of suckers and one eye. But one day we were swimming in very shallow water and this one octopus, it was a female, which you can tell by the arms, and she'd had several of her arms actually um, bitten off. So she'd had uh, some quarrels with 
predators. She seemed to enjoy our company and was leading us around. She let us stay with her while she'd be foraging, like sticking her arms in little holes, looking for something to eat. And she reached out and touched me and seemed to enjoy the company. And why should that be? It seems like such a miracle. But now octopuses are being seen in yet a newer light that while they may spend a lot of time alone because everybody will eat octopuses, they may not be as solitary and asocial as we thought. Wow. Yeah, that that just kind of blew my mind to think about. You're getting like almost like a little kid saying, hey, come check out my room. Well, yeah, this this is the, my toy box over here. The fact that, you, you know, that I as a human could understand that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know at first that with someone, you know, we are separated from octopus by half a billion years of evolution. And that's a big divide. Mm -hmm. We are mammals. We are vertebrates. They are invertebrates. The last time we shared a common ancestor, everybody was a tube. And yet, you can be friends with someone like that. And they can read you to an extent, and you can read them. And the, the tragic thing about octopuses is, and you mentioned it, they, they're so short-lived. They only live for, what, three years? Yeah, in, in captivity, by the time you get a giant Pacific octopus at your local aquarium, they probably are a couple of years old. They are one of the longest-lived species, and from the time they hatch out of an egg the size of a grain of rice till the day they die is under five years. And you won't meet the octopus as a tiny little planktonic baby. You will meet the octopus when he or she is you know, two or three years old. So you're only going to be friends with this lovely, interesting soul for a few years, and then you will be heartbroken, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Well, I, one of your gifts as a writer is uh, you took me along with that heartbreak. And, oh, uh, that, that's I'm a gift. So please. That's Gosh, a gift. Dave, I feel like we're kindred spirits. Well, Cy, it's been a joy to talk to you about both of these wonderful books uh, and your work, uh, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty, which is just really fun, a fun read. And if you're interested in hawks and birds of prey at all, got to read that book. And uh, and the and just gorgeous, wonderful soul of an octopus. What a, what a wonderful story that that is. Those are it's both wonderful books for anybody who's a nature lover. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks again to our guest, Cy Montgomery. You can find her books, The Hawk's Way and The Soul of an Octopus, at most major booksellers or order them at your locally owned bookstore. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs> <laughs>